praying for all day is happening, you are released to go and enjoy a field day. So uh, go, and uh, if you are a kid in here, follow all the other kids, and you will find uh, all kinds of fun. If you're a guest with us, I want to say thank you for being a guest with us today. Thank you for choosing to uh, spend your Sunday morning here with us at Covenant Church. Um, I would like to tell you I am still a guest, so this is officially my fifth week having come from the scorched earth of South Texas. And so uh, thank you as other guests for joining us. Uh, We want to get to know you. This is a community, but it's a family. And so one of the ways we do that, the easiest way for you to um, tell us who you are, is there's a little brown card on the coffee cart when you go outside. And if you would uh, fill that out and throw it in the little basket there, that gives me a chance and our elders a chance to reach out to you. How do we serve you? How do we enfold you into this place uh, that really does love and care for people well. And so as a special gift, if they uh, are so inclined, there's Covenant coffee mugs out there. So everybody who turns one of those in gets one of those so you can remember that we are praying for you uh, throughout the week. And that is something we want to do. So if you're a longtime attender and you've never filled one of these out and you just really want a coffee mug today, then maybe it's uh, your time to do that too. I don't judge. I don't follow the rules anyway. So you make your own rules, figure out what's going to happen for you. Uh, what we're going to do today is continue on our uh, sermon series, Dwell. So we've been spending uh, every week in Psalm 23. And it's a 30-day uh, experiment that we're kind of running. And so Psalm 23 is this really familiar scripture. You hear it at funerals, you hear it in hospital rooms, you hear it in, in hushed silences and whispers when times get difficult. That the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so what we've been attempting to do over these weeks is to create a greater fulfill, uh, fulfillment and awareness in a scripture that for so many of us, I've heard it, but have I really studied it? Have I really thought on it? Have I really considered what it means, not only in light of scripture, but in, in my own life? And so we are in week four of five. And one of the things we're doing is we have a devotional every single day. Um, and so that's available on Amazon if you wanted to buy it there. And you could look up Psalm 23 devotional and it's um, the first one on the list. Or uh, easier, we put it on Facebook every single morning of the week. And so at 6 a.m., if you were so inclined, you could start your day on Facebook guilt-free and uh, continue to grow and learn with what we're studying on a Sunday morning. So saying all of that, today we are talking about total prosperity. We've talked about uh, God's provision and his peace, his protection, and today is prosperity. And what we need to start out with is a little bit of a disclaimer, because prosperity, saying prosperity in church is a little bit of a dangerous thing uh, to begin with. Gospel prosperity is not what we've been told by a few fringe televangelists, okay? Good behavior and godly living is not the way to material wealth. So I'm going to just say that clearly and up front, so nobody will walk away going, I think what he was saying is if we do right things, we'll be rich. Good behavior and godly living is not a path to material wealth. If you need an example of this from scripture, look at Jesus. Never sinned, and by all accounts was functionally homeless and died a thief's death on the cross. Okay, so godly living, good behavior is not a way to material wealth. In fact, I would argue that living for Jesus will actually steal your personal wealth. If you live for yourself, your money is 100% yours. If you are a follower of Jesus and you begin to listen to the teachings of Jesus, what you come to realize is that all of a sudden your money is not yours. And you're called to give it to those in need and those who are troubled and those in the margins and those who are vulnerable. And all of a sudden, if you're a follower of Christ, rather than it making you wealthier, oftentimes you find that you have less wealth than if you simply live for yourself. All that to say, we are not demonizing wealth. Money is neutral, Money is actually absolutely neutral. So if I have a dollar in my pocket and I pull it out and I go and I put it into a fund that feeds hungry children around the world, that is a good dollar, isn't it? But if I take the same dollar and I go and I support human trafficking around the world, that's a bad dollar. 
but the dollar in and of itself is neutral. And so don't walk out of here thinking, A, I can have more money if I follow God's laws, or think that, B, I have to give all my money away and cover myself in ashes because money must be evil. Scripture says neither of those things. It says that money is neutral. It is the love of money that's evil. But we could say that about any number of things. God created sex for good things. It is the love of sex that creates an issue. God created uh, joy. God created all the things that God creates. When we elevate anything good that God has created above God himself, that's when we get into trouble. And so that is my kind of general disclaimer for a week where we talk about prosperity, because what you'll find is when we talk about prosperity as it relates in Psalm 23, it has very little to do with money. It speaks of a, a deep prosperity. The psalmist speaks of something that is found only in the true shepherd. God's prosperity is, in fact, his grace, and it is our prosperity if we accept it and we follow him. And so let's read Psalm 23. I'll put it up on the screens here. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are the very words of God. And where we focus today is on verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Of all the familiar passages within this larger passage, this is not one of them. You don't ever hear people quote that he prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That, that's not something we grab onto. It's not really well understood. And so what we're going to attempt to do today is to understand it so that we can begin to live in the reality that it provides us. What we see immediately is we serve a God of abundance. The good shepherd here is a shepherd of abundance. And so at the beginning of the psalm, you see this humble imagery of, of pastures and still streams, a shepherd and his sheep. It's these humble pictures. This metaphor really brings peace to our soul. And yet in verse 5, we begin to see this extravagant, abundant God. We see abundance and radical love on display. What we, what we begin to see is we're going to double click on this, is we're going to see a grace and a mercy that never runs out. And this is the overflow that's spoken of here. When it says, my cup overflows, this overflow is the grace and the mercy that comes from an inexhaustible fountain. And yet for us, we have to consider, what does prosperity mean to us in our culture? Prosperity for us is a means to procure provision. Prosperity is for us a means to procure peace, to, to get a hold of the things we need. Basically, if I was honest, I'd say prosperity for me, another dollar in my checking account, that's a way for me to buy what I don't have. Prosperity just gives me more of what I think I need. And what we're seeing here is different than that. So for you and me, money equals provision because I can buy food. Money equals peace because I can buy a vacation or a retreat. Money equals protection because I can get a, a better house and a better neighborhood behind a gate or whatever the, the case may be. But the prosperity of God doesn't buy provision. What we see here is the prosperity of God is provision. Prosperity of God doesn't buy peace. It is peace. It doesn't buy protection. It is protection. You see, it's not about money. No sin can overcome his prosperous grace. Those of us who follow Jesus, we would, we would see this 
fall out of the scripture week by week that there is no sin that can overcome his prosperity. His prosperity was seen in Jesus. And so I think what we need to understand is that, that weak or strong, that, that poor or wealthy, this is not something that we have to see in terms of checking accounts and dollar signs and did you tithe and how much is in the account. None of that is what's being spoken of. What we're seeing is about sin and grace. That you and I are deeply impoverished. Greg sings the song, All the Poor and Powerless. The first time I heard that song, I thought of uh, them, which is a word I try never to use. I thought of them, the people on the margins, the poor, the powerless, those who've been dealt an unjust hand, those who we are required to go and help. And I thought, gosh, yeah, let's sing about a way to love them. And only later does it click for me, we are the poor and the powerless. We are the lost and the lonely. We are those who are desperate in need of something greater. And so when we look at our own lives, we tend to place ourselves in the uh, privileged status. Well, we are, we're prosperous. We're in God's good graces. And yet, when we lose the perspective that we were once lost and lonely, that we were poor and powerless before he came and picked us up, then we lose everything. We haven't earned any of the faith we have. We haven't earned the blessing or the favor it's been given to us by a trick of geography. I often ask, what would be different had you been born in Senegal instead of, for me, San Antonio? What would be born different? But a trick of geography, I was born into a privileged class in the wealthiest country in the history of civilization. And had I been born 8,000 miles around the other side of the earth, what would my lot have been? What have I earned? And what has been deeply graced unto me that I might take that prosperity and pour out the overflow on those around me? I would say this, until we understand how deeply impoverished we are in sin— We'll never be able to grasp the depths of prosperity found in God's grace. It has to be a daily reminder. Until we realize how deeply impoverished we are in sin, we'll never be able to grasp the depths of prosperity found in God's grace. We are the poor and the powerless. We are in dire need of rescue. When we talk about what does it mean to be rescued, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, how did this actually take place? I like to use the the metaphor of, you know, the Coast Guard helicopters that fly over for a rescue when there's flooding inland or there's someone lost out at sea. And the Coast Guard helicopter goes out and there's that guy, that, the like bravest, maybe most insane guy I've ever known, right? He gets in the basket and they start lowering the basket down to the shipwreck. They lower the basket down to the flood zone and they have somebody they're going to pick up. And the guy in the basket is communicating with the guy, the pilot of the helicopter, and down he goes. And in the water is someone drowning. And down comes the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard guy says what? See how strong you are? He doesn't say anything. He says, be still. And he grabs. You've seen these videos. You've seen it in movies. And the Coast Guard guy will grab them up. And then up goes the winch. And the Coast Guard rescues the drowning victim. And if we don't see ourselves as the drowning victim, we've missed the whole thing. The whole of the gospel is to say we are those drowning. We were those who, in our sin, were drowning. And if you're like me, I didn't even know it. I just thought that's the way life was. And God, in his good grace, sends Jesus down in the basket, down to us. And where we fail is then we think that, well, I helped myself into the helicopter. 
Like I started doing stuff right or I turned my life around or I, you know, I started thinking about other people first or my righteousness, somewhere in there, I helped. You ask the Coast Guard guy in the basket if any of the drowning victims have ever helped. They are dead weight. And that's the picture of Jesus coming as we drown and look up and say, Lord, all we have is a hand to raise and he grabs it and it is not the strength of the one being saved that saves them. It is the strength of the Savior. So that even when we are too weak to hold on, the Savior still pulls. We live in the richest society in the history of humanity and we are desperately poor. And then once we realize that, only then can we recognize just how rich we are in grace. We can realize that not only in this day do we have this incredible prosperity, but God says it's even going to get better. Revelation 21.4 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God's prosperity, it doesn't buy healing. It is healing. The presence of God doesn't get us closer to being better. It is being better. And this brings us to the table, this idea in, in Psalm 23 of the, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I, I honestly, I've always skipped over this part. Like, yep, that sounds cool. Sweet, sweet metaphor. I totally get it. It's pretty deep though. Let's just move on. You know, you're in a study and you're just trying not to out yourself as not knowing what's happening. So I start looking into this culturally. What does this mean? I mean David, Jewish shepherd, Jewish king. What is this celebration that's happening? Culturally, there's a celebration meal that comes that's customary at the end of any great journey. Think about it this way. When uh, Pastor Ben had his last uh, weeks, what did this community do? This community had a celebration meal. Everybody showed up at the Eberly's house, and there were gifts, and there was food, and there was celebration, and there were stories told, and laughter, and tears, and there was a celebration. That's what you do at the end of a great journey. You have a celebration. You have a meal. You set the table and people come and you remember and you say, wasn't that incredible? I had my own. My church threw one for me. Hey, we're sorry you're leaving, but we want to celebrate with you. It's remarkable. Because what we're seeing is a celebration meal in the midst of the journey. Customarily, you wait till the end of the journey. And this says, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies, which is to say, usually you wait until completion. And yet God, the good shepherd, has set a table before David in the midst of his enemies. It's a bit like this. When I was in college, pushing two decades ago, I'm getting old, can't tell by my hairline, but I remember I took uh, math as a freshman and I'm, I'm not real fond of math. I like that you will do math. And I want to know what your math comes to because that helps me. But I'm not, I'm, it's not my strength. So I took a class, a class called Math for Artists um, at the University of Texas. Yeah, you laugh it up. That's funny. You know, counting paintbrushes, that sort of thing. You know, Six paintbrushes. Okay. 8 a.m., total weed out class, 500 people in it. Um, I didn't want to be there. I often wasn't there. End of the semester comes, I got an F. Combine that with some of my other stellar early uh, scores in my university career, and I was placed on some sort of academic probation. I don't know what it was, except that they automatically enrolled me in a class called study skills. <laughs> yeah. You can ask my wife. I have uh, an insatiable need to learn things, but I don't really care about the test. 
and that kind of bit me. So here I am enrolled in this class called Study Skills while again taking the same Math for Artists class over again, again at 8 a.m. as if I hadn't learned my lesson. I figured I had all the notes. I should be able to figure this out. I got a D. So I will proudly tell you that with my university degree, I have a cumulative math GPA of 0.5. So if you ask me to do your accounting, good luck. And as I thought about that, I was thinking this, this would be the scenario. So I come home and I got, you know, a 1.7 GPA or whatever incredible marks I brought home after my first year at school. And it would have been like walking in the front door and having a congratulations graduate hanging in the living room. And a big party for me and my graduation, which would not have only felt a little bit premature, but would almost have been offensive because you don't know how far I am from that right now. And yet that's the picture we're getting, is that David says, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table. It's the celebration table that comes only at the end of the journey. And so God is looking around. The good shepherd looks at his children, and he says, he says listen here, we are celebrating now. Why? Because the celebration is the culmination, and it's only celebrated when victory has come. And God is saying, victory has come. That I am God, and I've got this. And in the Old Testament, that meant one thing. Because you must have, in the Old Testament, gone, well, I mean, I guess I can trust you. You and I have the benefit of, of perspective of going, Jesus has come. And Jesus died and Jesus rose. And so we place our hope and our faith in the victory that Jesus has. And so literally, you and I live in a world where God has created a celebration table and we eat in the midst of our enemies. Does anyone feel like they have enemies in this world? And if you don't have people enemies, you have habit enemies and you have sin enemies and you have financial enemies, you have relational enemies, you have things that are feeling, you come against you every day. And what this is to say is, yes, you have those, but I got this what God is saying. And it's jarring for us because it doesn't seem right. I'm, I, I'm still struggling in this life, God. And God goes, I'm not. And so next week, if you turn around in the downtown Cleveland, the streets are filled with people celebrating the Brown Super Bowl victory. <laughs> yeah. Brown's jokes always win. Okay. <laughs> David looks at the good shepherd And I would imagine in this moment, David looks confused. Only after they've been defeated, Lord, only after they've been defeated do we have the celebration to which God says, but they have. But they have. Enemies all around, God says to you and me, table for two. Sit with me. Dine with me. When you are with me, they are no enemy at all. John 10.10, it says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they have life and have it abundantly. That word again, abundance. Along this dangerous journey, the shepherd, the shepherd promises that death can't win. And so what he shows us is that we have a, a life that can't be stolen because of grace. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that. We have a faith that cannot be killed because Jesus overcame death. We have a salvation that can't be destroyed because it's been refined in the fire. It is God's perfect gift, and we have this because we have Jesus. This is prosperity in its truest sense, then. The presence and the anointing of the God of the universe, which cannot be bought for any price and cannot be supplied by any other means. That's true prosperity. 
the presence and the anointing of the God of the universe, which cannot be bought for any price and cannot be supplied by any other means. And you have that. What do you call something that can't be bought at any price? Priceless, right. What do you call the man who owns priceless things? I call him quite wealthy. That's us. We own the priceless gift of grace. And so you and I are wealthy in a sense that makes no sense in this world. And so in Jesus, we have nothing left to fear because God's prosperity is his peace because he's brought Christ to make peace for us. It is his protection that we have no enemies left to fear. It is his provision because everything we need is wrapped up in the Savior. In Jesus, we have radical abundance and this is the table at which you and I sit. And so the danger is to forget that. Right? The danger is not that this doesn't exist because it exists. The danger is if we forget that, we forget this abundance, that's to walk away from the table. That's to walk away from the grace. That's to walk away from what God has provided. And so we find ourselves out in the wilderness again, and we wonder, how did we get there? God, why have you forsaken me? And so often, my own conception is that God sits at the table and waits and goes, why did you walk away from the table? To remember the abundance of God is then to walk in celebration of his victory, his victory, and of deep appreciation for the one who won the victory, which is Jesus. Which brings us to this anointing. You have anointed my head with oil, it says in the scripture. This is total prosperity. Anointing was symbolic and sacred. Symbolic and sacred. And this is different for us because when we hear of abundance and we hear of something that, oh, but anointing, that's, that's like a cool gift you get, or what is that? It's abundance, but in a different way than you and I see abundance. I see abundance, and every, uh, every year my grandmother still sends uh, birthday checks. Steph got hers a few weeks ago. Still hadn't spelled her name right, but we don't worry about that. That's abundance. That's found money. That every year, grandma sends the birthday check. And this is different than that kind of abundance. That's the abundance of, of material prosperity. This is a special abundance, this anointing is not intended to please the receiver. And this is what makes it different. My grandmother intends to please my wife. The anointing of God, this gift, is not intended to please the receiver, but to seal and set them apart. So Jesus came to give life, it said, to give abundant life. And so in surrender to Jesus, the scripture teaches that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that seal is something that cannot be taken away, and it seals us and then sets us apart that we have a mark upon us that says, mine. God looks upon us and says, my child, my daughter, my son. And we say, but you don't know what I've done, Lord. He says, mine, sealed. David was anointed by God. David writes the psalm. David knows what this is going to be. David's anointed. He's, he's got oil anointing on him. He's, he's marked as the future king. You and I have been marked by the Holy Spirit as heirs of the King, as children of God. And this is the assurance that should remove all of our insignificance, all of our fear, all of our insecurity. Because we are a people that walk through life wondering, what if I'm not making a difference? What if I don't really matter? What if this thing that I'm doing isn't good enough? What if... And these are all questions of our significance. What if this is as high as I ever make it up the ladder? 
And what God says is, you are a child of mine, and your significance in me is greater than anything you will ever find on that earth. Which isn't then a restriction that you don't get to go and look for what God's best is for you here. It's a freedom to say, no matter where you land, no matter how you go, no matter where you make it, you got me. And so your greatest victory won't be any better than what I've already given you, and your greatest failure won't matter because you're still victorious in me. Scripture says my cup overflows. Our cup overflows in grace because God is an inexhaustible fountain of goodness and mercy. But picture the fountain, if you will, just any fountain. Picture it, and it just, it flows. As a kid, these things always perplex me because I couldn't figure out where the water was coming from, but it just recycles, and it just seems like this endless loop This is the picture of God of grace, the God of mercy. He's an inexhaustible fountain of goodness. This means something to us. If you and I are the vessel receiving that goodness and my cup overflows, if I'm the vessel, if I'm the cup, what it does is it eliminates the need for the cup to be of any value. You and I often worry that we can't be filled because look at the dents in my cup. Look at the scars on me. Look at the wounds. If you knew what I'd done. As a pastor for a number of years now, I've heard that more than almost any other phrase when someone comes in my office. Pastor, if you knew what I'd done. If you knew the thoughts that I had. If you knew the things that... And the beauty of grace is to say that it isn't about the vessel receiving the grace. It's about the fountain that never runs out. So many people worried that they're not worthy. Their cup is too dirty. Their cup is too broken. Their cup is too dented. There's too many scars. There's too much history. I felt that. If you only knew me, I would say, you would know that I'm not worthy of that in the slightest. There's no way I could receive that. David's life was marked by failure, wasn't it? The psalmist whose words and poetry ends up being our scripture, divinely inspired by God. David was not exactly a highlight reel of righteousness for a season. David sleeps with another man's wife. David gets her pregnant. And then David has the uh, brilliant scheme to then have the husband killed. Maybe that'll solve the problem. This is David's contribution for a season of his life. You think he feels worthy of the goodness and the overflow of God? You think he feels worthy of the grace? Show me a more battered and bruised soul than that. And so the question I would ask you this morning, I would say, what is it from your past? What sin, what behavior, what habit, what thought, what thing do you still hold? Or maybe that the enemy holds over you that allows you to feel unqualified. Are you willing to allow God to restore your soul today? Or are you going to hold that thing that God has said, I've already won. I have victory. Revelation 21, 5 through 7 says, He who sits on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Making all things new, including us. Scripture teaches, you and I, when we believe in Jesus, we become a new creation. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And so he said, Write these, for these things are faithful and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. I cannot afford the grace of God. I am unworthy of the grace of God, and yet God in his goodness saw me 
and took me under his wing and said, I will love you anyway. And so Jesus came to be that representation. And so even the most unpretentious vessel, flaws and scratches and all can come and be filled at the fountain of God's goodness. Abundance is not about the cup, it's about the fountain. It's not about the cup, it's about the filling. Years ago, there was an old trunk. It was bought at a garage sale. It was scratched and worn, you can imagine it, about this big. It's the kind of thing, if you've ever had a garage sale, that you put all your other junk in, and you hope someone will just buy kind of a lot of junk all at once. So there's, you know, a feather boa and a broken pencil and an old record player. You know, the kind of junk you put in a trunk. I didn't mean to do that. It's funny, though. So this old trunk is sitting at this garage sale, and it's $4. Goes throughout the day, no one's buying it, no one's buying it in the afternoon. What do you do at a garage sale? But you basically start throwing things at passing cars, hoping that they'll just land in there and they'll take them with them. Somebody comes up and for $2 at the end of the garage sale says, fine, I'll just buy whatever's in there. I'll take the trunk. They take the trunk home, scratched and worn, hinges broken. Open it up. They look through. They see the broken things. They see the worthless nonsense. They find a little painting. That big. A previously undiscovered Monet. Worth millions. What makes the trunk valuable what's been placed inside of it. What makes you valuable is what has been placed inside of you. God has sown his priceless prosperity inside those who believe so that matter, no matter the scratches, the scars, the brokenness, or whatever your past brings with you, you are of infinite value because he said so. And so the overflowing is about what's inside. We are the poor and the powerless, and yet we have been anointed as his children. You've been given grace to overcome all trouble. You've been given grace to overcome every past mistake. You have been given true prosperity. And this is why the shepherd invites us to a celebration dinner. The work is done. The shepherd has secured your future, and now his grace overflows in you. And so I ask the question again, where have you refused God's grace? And where are you still holding on to the past? Where have you not allowed grace to fill your cup? And then secondarily, where has God created an opportunity for you to overflow, for the goodness and grace that he has given you to overflow in the lives of others? In the lives of those who may not know his goodness, who may not know his peace, who may be in their own season in the valley of the shadow of death, just now recognizing that this life is hard. Where is that opportunity in your life? A coworker, a neighbor, a family member, a friend, somebody that is desperate for the grace that's in your cup to wash out and wash onto them. So I challenge you to respond to the Spirit's nudge in that today. More than anything, I would pray that we would be a community that not only knows the overflow of God in our own lives, that's daily in his word recognizing that we are the poor and the powerless and yet we are victors in his kingdom. And in our humility recognize his goodness and then live it out. 
I also pray that we are the people that would overflow far and wide so that people all over this region would be touched, would be blessed, would be loved, would be graced because you and I have so much in us. So what I'd like you to do as we close this today is if you would, just in your seat, um, as I pray, would you open your hands in your lap? Really simple. Because one of two things is true. Either there's areas of your life where you have not actually opened up your hands. You're holding on tightly to something and saying, God, I got everything else, but this is mine. And that area is the area of stress in your life. It is the area where you not let go of the control. What he wants desperately is for you to give it to him and entrust it to him. So maybe that's why your hands are open because you recognize there's something you got to let go of. Maybe it's a past hurt. Maybe it's a sin habit. For others of us, uh, our hands are open, represent something else. That you and I are overflowing in God's goodness and grace, and these hands are the very things that might go and serve someone else. And so where is it that God has opened up an opportunity for you? And maybe it is through your hands, your open, willing hands, that we will go and see a world changed by his goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hands are open to you. God, every heart in this place is in a different position. Every heart here is in a different place in the journey, a different mile marker. Father, everyone is in a battle and everyone has enemies. So Father, for those of us in this room that are still holding on to the past, to sin, to habits, holding on too tightly to areas of our life where we've not yet surrendered to you. Father, my prayer is that we would let go. That God, in this moment, we would sense your spirit and we would allow you to take the burden from us. That we would sit at the celebration table with you and truly sense your victory in every area of our lives. Father, others in this room uh, so often sit at that table and yet Father, we would confess that the overflow in our lives doesn't flow very far from us. That we've become uh, obese in our grace. And it is upon us, Father, to then seek out opportunities in this world to overflow into this community. Regardless of any affinity, that we would be undiscriminate in our ruthless grace that every man, woman, and child in this region would somehow be touched by the cascading effect of the inexhaustible fountain of goodness flowing into our lives. And so, Father, we would commit to use these hands to further your kingdom to make you known. Father, more than anything, we thank you today that you would see us as your children. And so we again tell you we believe and we love you. We thank you for a time and a space like this in the midst of an incredibly busy season in this town where we would carve out time to know you better. So speak to us, Lord. Comfort us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a time of communion. It's something we do here every week, and uh, it's a quick moment of explanation. If you're a follower of Christ, this is for you. Simple as that. We have bread and juice, and whenever you're ready in the next few songs, you would stand up.